six objections that you will often hear for why we should not observe the Lord's Day as a set day of rest each and every week. Now, some of these are going to be general objections, meaning they're not necessarily coming out of a particular text of Scripture. They're more logical or philosophical objections, and those are usually actually the easiest to turn away. And so we will tackle those first, the easiest ones, and then we will build up to probably two more weighty objections that are based upon two texts in the New Testament. We'll do those at the end. So, six objections that you will commonly hear to the Sabbath. The first one. You'll often hear it said that the fourth commandment is, which is the Sabbath commandment, is the only of the Ten Commandments that is not explicitly repeated in the New Testament. Now, there are many people who make this claim. I actually remember uh, coming across it in a book from a New Covenant theologian. Now, if you recall from uh, about a month and a half, two months ago, we talked about Romans 6.14 and some various hermeneutical methods like dispensationalism and New Covenant theology. We said that New Covenant theologians believe that only commands from the Old Testament that are repeated in the New Testament, either by an apostle or by Christ, are binding on Christians today. They believe in something called the law of Christ. In other words, only the laws that Christ himself gives, not the Old Testament laws, are binding upon Christians. And this is really a variation of that argument. And the force of the argument is fairly straightforward. If God really intended for the fourth commandment, a Sabbath observance, to remain under the New Testament economy, then why would he explicitly restate every other of the Ten Commandments except for that one? Now you can see the argument. But here's the problem. And this is the reason why we chose to address this one first. It's the weakest. It's just not true. The fourth commandment is not the only one of the Ten Commandments not explicitly restated in the New Testament. In fact, none of the first four commandments are explicitly restated in the New Testament. Now, you all know that the Ten Commandments are divided into two tables. We have the first four commandments, which show man's duties in relationship to God. That's the first table. And then the second table of the law respects man's duties to other humans. Those are the final six commandments. Now, the final six commandments, most of them, if not all, are explicitly restated, usually in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. For example, thou shalt not murder. And Christian, or Christ explains their full significance. But none of the first four commandments are explicitly restated in the New Testament. And we would certainly hope that people making this argument would not be willing to say that we should abandon all of the first four commandments just because they're not restated in the New Testament. Uh, if so, we would be allowed then to worship other gods. Just because something is not rewritten in a later portion of Scripture does not mean that it is not binding on the Christian. Now they might respond to that by saying, okay, well, uh, even though the first four commandments aren't explicitly restated, at least the first three are implicitly reaffirmed in the New Testament. There's, uh, for example, an implicit assumption in the New Testament that you should not worship any other gods but God. And I would say that for the fourth commandment, we have an implicit assumption in the New Testament as well. And the fact that the early church set aside one day a week for its gathering and for its worship. And that doesn't even begin to bring in all the texts that, especially the texts in Hebrews that we've considered, where I think we have an explicit rebinding of the fourth commandment. But you see, once you go down this road, the whole argument becomes meaningless because you start saying, well, okay, the first three are implicitly restated. Well, so is the fourth commandment. So the whole basis of the argument drops away on first examination. 
And that's the first problem with the argument. It's just wrong. It's not the only commandment not restated. Now, most people have heard this stated somewhere. The people who repeat it heard it on the Internet or they heard some preacher say it. Ninety-nine percent of them did not actually sit down with the New Testament and go through and say, okay, let me check off that all ten of the commandments are restated. They just heard it and they repeat it. But we need to know that this is something that's commonly out there. And we need to know how to respond to it. The second and probably weightier problem with this argument is based upon hermeneutics. You remember about two months ago, the sermon I already referenced, we talked about hermeneutics, and that is how you interpret the Bible, the the set of rules that you follow. And so even if it were true that the fourth commandment was the only one not explicitly restated in the New Testament, think about what kind of hermeneutic you'd have to be functioning on in order for that argument to hold any water. You are implicitly saying that God's word resets, or God's laws reset when Christ comes. And that everything he said before is to be temporarily suspended and can only go back into effect if the New Testament itself binds it. And so you're pitting the Old Testament against the New Testament. And the laws that were given upon one basis in the Old Testament, uh, if they are rebound in the New Testament, are now based upon a different authority than they were in the Old Testament. If you think about that for a second, uh, the only reason that New Covenant theologians, and and those come out of Reformed Baptist circles, so that's not just a sectarian group that you're not going to run into, The only reason that people like that believe thou shalt not murder is because Christ reset it in the New Testament. That's the basis of why they think the law is rebinding, which is a different basis than it was given in the Old Testament. You see, it makes a mismatch of God's law when you go down this hermeneutical trail. Now consider another one of the absurdities that this objection leads to. Do you know how many laws from Leviticus, or the entire Pentateuch, are foundational? to Christian ethics, and even to secular ethics in many countries that are not restated in the New Testament. You shall not sleep with an animal is not restated in the New Testament. Now, I guess that's all right because Christ or the apostles didn't give that to us as an explicit law. You shall not rape is not repeated in the New Testament either. You see, this is a backwards hermeneutic. It allows you to justify all kinds of things because you're not interpreting the scriptures properly. And this hermeneutic says that all laws are abrogated unless explicitly restated. But a biblical hermeneutic sees that when God gives a law, it is binding and in force until God himself explicitly abrogates it. So we assume that all laws are to continue unless we are told that Christ fulfills them and that they are done away with. You see, it's the exact opposite of the way that the people making this objection approach it. They say laws are done away with until they are rebound. We say laws are enforced until they are done away with. So that's the first objection. It's a bad objection. I don't think most people here would struggle too much with it. The second objection that you'll often hear is based upon Romans 6.14. You are not under the law, but under grace. You remember, uh, we again, this is the third time I've referenced this sermon. We have addressed this text. And since we already addressed it a couple of months ago, I'm, I'm not going to go back into a whole lot of detail about it. I just want to summarize what we saw when we looked at this verse, and then we'll make some application. Now, if you recall, the point of Romans 6.14 is to explain to us why sin will not have dominion over us as believers. That's the point of the text. Sin will have no dominion over you because you're not under the law but under grace. Now, we were born in Adam, and when we sinned, 
sin took dominion over us. And at one and the same time, God placed us under the curse of the dominion of sin. And as long as you are under sin's dominion, death is the verdict that hangs upon your life. It is the wage of your sin. You will die physically, and you will suffer spiritual death for all of eternity. And the only way to escape this fate is to be brought out from under sin's dominion and to be placed back under God's dominion, like Adam was. And the problem is that when you are under sin's dominion, the only means that you have to attempt to fight it and to overthrow it is the law. It's the only thing you've got. The entire basis of your relationship to God and to sin is law. But when you try to fight sin with law-keeping, it only strengthens sin's grip upon you. The law was never designed for man to be able to fight sin. The law was designed originally in the garden to obtain righteousness pre-sin. But once sin enters the world, the law has no help. It can give you no means of fighting sin. It wasn't designed for that. And so what Paul says in Romans 6.14 is that if you are in Jesus Christ, you have been given something else. You've been given grace. And grace is the one thing that God has designed to actually fight sin. So when you're under grace, you're able to come out from under sin's dominion, and you are no longer having to fight with the powerless tool of law. Under grace, you are free from sin's dominion. But what that text is not discussing is Christian discipleship, sanctification, or what standard God expects believers to hear to. That's not the context of what Paul is saying. Yet people who quote that text, you're not under the law but under grace, as a means of defending some behavior that they are engaged in, have transferred the text out of its natural context and into a discussion of either sanctification or what believers may or may not do. And they perverted the scripture in so doing. And the best way to deal with someone who quotes this text to say that some aspect of God's law doesn't apply to them is to start asking some questions or maybe to make a mockery of it. Something like, oh, I had no idea I wasn't bound by God's law anymore. Thank you so much for bringing this to my attention. Here I was thinking that I needed to obey what God told me, but now I see I can do whatever I want. I'm not under the law. I can go take my neighbor's car that I've been coveting for a while. I think while I'm at it, I'll go take a second wife or a girlfriend. I don't have to worry about being truthful anymore. I can lie to get whatever I want. And now that you mention it, I've got a coworker who's really getting on my nerves. Maybe I'll go plunge a knife in his neck when we get out in the parking lot. You see how absurd this is. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. Romans 6.14 has nothing to do with which aspects of God's law are binding upon the Christian today. And hence... It has nothing to do with the question of whether or not Christians must obey the fourth commandment. That's not the context that that text is placed in. That's the second objection. Not under the law, but under grace. Third objection that you'll sometimes hear is, well, clearly the fourth commandment is not very important for Christians today because Jesus broke the Sabbath. Now, on the surface, this objection actually appears to potentially have some biblical weight and support behind it. If you'll recall the story from John chapter 5, Jesus comes to the pool of Bethesda. And there he finds a man who's been crippled from birth. And what happens? He has compassion on the man, and he heals him on the Sabbath day. 
And this makes the religious leaders very angry because they had decreed that no healing should take place on the Sabbath day, which Jesus did. And they had decreed that crippled men were not to take up their mats and try to walk or transport themselves on the Sabbath day. And the man that Jesus healed did just that. So the religious leaders saw Christ as a lawbreaker. And then we read in John 5:18 the following words. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so people say, there it is, right there in the Bible. John himself, in writing this book, says, Jesus broke the Sabbath. Remember, it says, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath. That's not the Pharisees speaking, that's John speaking as he writes this text. And so people say, the interpretation of this event that John gives is that Jesus actually broke the Sabbath. And there's two problems with that exegetically. First, just a chapter and a half later, in John chapter 7, Jesus is teaching in the temple, and he gets into a conversation with the Pharisees, and he brings up this exact incident of where he healed the man. And he says the following, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps it. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you marvel at it. Here's the key. Moses gave you circumcision, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses might not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I have made a man's body whole? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Now notice, Jesus tells the Pharisees something very important. He says to them, you don't even realize it, but you do a quote-unquote work on the Sabbath too. Circumcision. Now think about the context. Why, how does that make any sense? Remember, under Jewish law, males had to be circumcised when? Eighth day. Eighth day after their birth. And if you think about it logically, there are going to be some babies who are born, and eight days after their birth is the Sabbath day. Right. Now on the surface it appears that there's a contradiction for the Pharisees in God's law about what they're to do. They're to not work on the Sabbath, but they're also to circumcise any baby on the eighth day. So if they've got a baby who was born eight days ago and it's the Sabbath day, now in their mind, what are they supposed to do? Do we obey the Sabbath command or do we obey the command to circumcise the child? And the Pharisees made the decision to go ahead and circumcise anyway, even though under their standards they were breaking the Sabbath. In other words, they recognized that Sabbath-keeping was no excuse for breaking another aspect of God's law by failing to do something that it required, namely circumcision. Yet even though they can see how this works in the area of circumcision, they have failed to see it in regard to other aspects of the law. Because the law also commanded what? Mercy for the poor and the widow, and kindness to the cripple and the lame. And that's exactly what Jesus did for the man who was crippled from birth. He did not put the law of observing the Sabbath at odds with God's law of being merciful to the cripple. He harmonized God's law in these two areas, just like the Pharisees had done with circumcision, but they failed to see it when Jesus did it. And so they accused him of breaking the law, but it was the Pharisees who were being inconsistent by not realizing that, in Jesus' case, they were trying to pit one part of God's law against the other and call him a lawbreaker. So when John says that Christ broke the Sabbath, 
He's speaking from the perspective of how the Pharisees viewed things. They thought he broke the Sabbath. But Jesus' statement here in John 7, his interpretation of the event, event, makes it clear that he did not break the Sabbath. So that's the first problem with the argument that Jesus broke the Sabbath. It fails to take into account Jesus' own assessment of that episode. Now there's another episode where the disciples in Christ get accused of breaking the Sabbath, where they're walking through the fields, and the the disciples are picking the heads of grain. The exact same principle applies there. You don't pit the law of God about Sabbath keeping against people who are hungry and need food. It's the same thing. We're not going to go through that text because it's the exact same principle. That's the first problem. Second problem with this objection, and it's a big one. The Sabbath was a part of God's law, one of the Ten Commandments. And even if you believe that the Sabbath was only relevant during the Jewish time period, it was still a part of God's law when Christ was born, along with all the other laws of Moses. And why was Christ born? Why did he humble himself and take on flesh? It was to redeem us from the bondage of sin and the guilt imposed by the law. And what did Christ have to do in order to carry out that redemption? He had to be made under the law. He had to come under its demands so that he could obey it perfectly. And by obeying it perfectly, he merits righteousness that can be imputed to all of us. But what law was Christ made under? What law did he have to obey perfectly? Think back to the garden for just a second. Originally, Adam could have obtained righteousness by obeying what? The Ten Commandments, right? Wrong. Adam could have obtained righteousness by obeying the Ten Commandments and every positive law. You remember positive laws from last week? That's laws in addition to the moral ones. He could have obtained righteousness by obeying the Ten Commandments and all extra laws that God placed upon him. And what was the extra law from the garden? Thou shalt not eat of the tree. So Adam had to obey the Ten Commandments and every other command of God in force at the time of his obedience. Now, the person who obtains righteousness by law-keeping must obey all commandments, all moral commandments which are timeless, and like we said, any other positive laws that God has put in place. Christ did not have to obey the command that thou shalt not eat of the tree in order to obtain righteousness. Why not? Because it was a positive law in, in place for a time and a season and had been done away with when Adam fell. But Christ did have to obey all laws that God bound upon men at the time of his coming. And Christ was born as a Jew. And therefore, he was under the obligation to obey all of the specifically Jewish laws in his obedience to God. In addition to the moral laws, he had to obey all of the Mosaic Code. And so even if you want to say that the Sabbath is purely a Mosaic law, but it's not a moral one, and so it's not valid for us, Christ was still a Jew, and he was obliged to obey all of the Jewish law in order to fulfill the requirements of perfect obedience. If he does not, as an aside, if he did not keep the Sabbath, then he did not keep all of the Jewish law, and the Jewish law was not fulfilled, and so it's still binding on you today. But it gets even worse. If Christ didn't obey the Sabbath, then he didn't obey all the law he was placed under, and hence he didn't obtain a righteousness that could be given to you, and you're still in your sins. If Christ didn't obey the Sabbath, you're all going to hell. It's that simple. The whole objection that Christ didn't obey the Sabbath is based on a very shallow view of the law. 
the work of Christ and imputed righteousness. I think it's very clear in Scripture that Christ kept all of the law, including the day of rest that God had given to the people of Israel. That's the third objection. Fourth objection. The Jewish Sabbath continued after Christ's resurrection. You'll commonly hear that said. I know I've heard that a few times. And the evidence put forward for this objection is fairly straightforward. After Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, we read in numerous places in the book of Acts where the apostles are engaged in some sort of activity on what the author, or Luke, calls the Sabbath day. And in the context of those passages, it's very obvious that it is the Jewish Sabbath that is in view. It's the Jewish Sabbath that he calls the Sabbath day. Why? Because the apostles are going into synagogues when Jews are gathered together in order to evangelize them. And Jews gather together in the synagogue on Saturday, not on Sunday. So, for example, we read in Acts 17, 1 through 2, that when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days... He reasoned with them from the scriptures. So clearly Paul is going to meet the Jews when they're gathered together. And that day that they're gathered is referred to as the Sabbath. And he does it for three consecutive Sabbaths. So there's an example of where uh, the Jewish holy day is called the Sabbath, even after Christ is ascended into heaven. We also read one more example in Acts 13, 14. But when they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia... And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Once again, Paul goes into the Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath day. And there are plenty of other passages where this happens, but I think that's sufficient to show it. So what's going on here? Is there no Christian Sabbath because the seventh day is still called the Sabbath after Christ's resurrection? A couple of things need to be mentioned here. First, the implications of what Christ had done through his work of atonement and resurrection were worked out over a period of time until the destruction of the temple in AD 70. For example, some of the apostles continued to go with the, to the temple with other Jews in the very earliest years after Christ's ascension. They didn't completely abandon the temple the day after the resurrection, even though that temple was to be destroyed and had no spiritual significance since the true temple had already come. We also see that Peter still continued, for a time at least, to obey a kosher diet until he's given the vision and the full implications of Christ's work on the Mosaic law and the ceremonial law were given. Circumcision continued to be practiced for at least a decade after Christ's death by God-fearing people until the apostles met to settle the practice at the Jerusalem Council. And so yes, the Saturday is called the Sabbath in Acts, but that in no way underdoes what Christ did on the cross and in his resurrection. But I think there's a more compelling reason than even that. The fact that Saturday was referred to as the Sabbath in Acts is simply a historical custom that the apostles, the Jews, and even many Greeks operated with. Think about it for a second. Saturday had been called the Sabbath for a long, 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 long time. It's just how they were used to referring to it. And it shouldn't surprise us that they continue to do so out of sheer custom. Now, we early on see in the apostolic age that Sunday is set apart as a day of assembly for worship. You don't see the early Christians gathering on Saturday for worship. They're gathering on Sunday. So clearly they made a differentiation, even if they continued to customarily refer to the Jewish Sabbath as the Sabbath day. And as an aside, the apostles 
primarily gathered in the in the uh, synagogue on the Sabbath day to evangelize the Jews. They weren't worshiping with them. Very clearly, they made this differentiation. And so most of the people who make this argument have also never considered how absurd that argument is on their own presuppositions. 98% of the people who say, well, Saturday is still called the Sabbath after Christ's resurrection, believe what? Christ abrogated the Sabbath and any concept of Sabbath keeping. So they can't believe that Luke's actually still calling Saturday the Sabbath as if the Sabbath of the Jews is still in operations. They don't believe that. They believe it's done away with. So the whole objection undercuts their own assumptions. The only people who can really make this objection are Seventh-day Adventists who still gather to worship on Saturday. If you don't, if you don't keep Saturday as the Sabbath, then you don't really believe that Luke was actually calling this the Sabbath. You believe he was calling it such as custom. So the whole objection falls apart for 98% of the people who use it. Fifth objection. And these are where we'll get to a little bit more meat. We'll go into some text. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And I know some of you have asked about this passage. And so let's try and take some time and thoroughly deal with it. It is, uh, I think, very easily dealt with with a little bit of Old Testament background. But on the surface, it, it is one that causes people some problems. So what does the text say? It reads as follows. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbaths. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now put that on pause for just a second. Before I jump into that text and explain it, let me go ahead and knock down another objection that's often raised against the Sabbath because it usually comes out of this verse as a secondary objection. And we've actually already kind of talked about it in our discussion of Hebrews. And that's when people say, Christ is our Sabbath. The Sabbath was a shadow, but Christ is the substance thereof. Remember, we saw from the epistle to the Hebrews that it is true that we have a rest in Christ. The apostle explicitly says that in chapter 4, verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest, that rest in Christ. That's true. But the apostle to the Hebrews doesn't limit our rest to just a rest in Christ. He goes beyond that. That's what we looked at last week. He says that there is a ritual sabbatismos observance for the people of God in addition to the rest that they have in Christ. And all of that was based upon the perpetuity of God's law and the fact that Christ's work and rest reflect the Father's work and rest. We rest in Christ, but that in no way implies or pits itself against having a day of rest. Did David rest in Christ? Was Christ his Sabbath? I would hope so, as a believer. Did he observe a day of rest? He certainly did. So just saying Christ is our Sabbath doesn't automatically exclude a day of rest. It's a non-starter. But let's go back to this text. As far as this text goes, most people would say, well, the case is done and shut. The Apostle Paul says that no one may judge you in regard to the Sabbath. So there can't be any Sabbath day in the New Covenant. Otherwise, someone would be able to judge you for not observing it. If it was binding, right? Well, not quite. Because in what I just said, I misquoted the text to you on purpose. And I did so to show you how most people implicitly assume the text says one thing when it actually doesn't. I said, no one may judge you with regard to the Sabbath. That's not what the text says. It says, no one may judge you with regard to Sabbaths. Plural. 
You might say, well, what does that matter? Sabbath, Sabbath, it's the same thing. As we're going to see from the Old Testament, it is not at all the same thing. Now, why would the Apostle Paul pick the three things that he does to tell the Colossians that no one may judge them in regard to it? He says, don't let anyone judge you with regard to a festival or new moons or Sabbaths. There's a lot of things in the Old Testament Mosaic Law that are no longer binding on Christians and that we should not be judged for. He could have picked a lot of things to tell us not to let anyone judge us with regard to them. He could have well said, don't let anyone judge you with regard to free will offerings, pilgrimages to Jerusalem, or ceremonial washings after you've touched a dead body. Why pick festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths? The answer is not too hard to find if you pay close attention to some details in your Old Testament. Paul was a student of the Old Testament. And he picked up on a lot of patterns of speech and Jewish idioms that go right over our head. And I would submit to you that the phrase festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths is a technical Hebrew idiom that is used to refer not necessarily to those three things individually, but to all of the holy days of the Hebrew calendar. Now, y'all know what an idiom is, right? It's when you use a series of words and their meaning taken together refers to something other than the meaning you would get if you just looked at the meaning of each individual word. So in English, we often say, I let him off the hook. Is he, is he hurt? Is he attached to a hook? Is it going to be bloody when I pull it out? Well, you know that that's not what we mean by the phrase, let him off the hook. We mean, don't hold him responsible for some action or consequence, even if he was involved. But if you just took the meaning of each of those words in the idiom, you would never arrive at what the phrase actually means. The meaning of an idiom is not determined by the words that make it up. And that's what we're dealing with here. When a Jewish writer put those three words together, the Jew understood that the writer wasn't referring to new moons, festivals, and Sabbaths in isolation, but to the whole system of Jewish holy days. Consider the following passages. 1 Chronicles 23.31 And you are to offer all burnt sacrifices to Yahweh and the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the festivals by number according to the command that the Lord your God has given you. 2 Chronicles 2, verse 4. Behold, I build a house to the name of Yahweh my God for the burnt offerings in the morning and in the evening on the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the festivals of Yahweh our God. 2 Chronicles 31, verse 3. God has also appointed the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths, for the new moons, and for the festivals, as is written in the law of Yahweh. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 33. The showbread and for the continual grain offering and for the continual burnt offering should be given of the Sabbaths and the new moons and for the festivals and for the holy things to make atonement for Israel. Ezekiel 45:17, And it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings Listen to this. Grain offerings and drink offerings. Hold on to that phrase. We're going to come back to it. In the festivals, in the new moons, and in the Sabbaths. And Hosea, in chapter 2, verses 11, God speaks to the prophet Hosea. And he announces this judgment on Israel. He says, I will put an end to her mirth, to her feasts, her new moons, and her Sabbaths, and all her appointed festivals. You see, all the times in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit uses those three terms together to indicate something greater than the sum of its parts. In all those contexts, what were the terms taken together referring to? 
What was it that God was talking about? Jewish holy days. All of them. Not just those three categories of things. Every Jewish holy day. When God threatened Israel through the prophet Isaiah in the last text we read that his wrath was coming, he told them he'd put an end to all of her festivals, her new moons, and her Sabbaths. Was he going to let the Passover continue? How about the Feast of Booths? Would that get to stand too? No. He was talking about putting an end to the, the central heart of Israel's religion, the days that it set aside to worship God. All of them. All of them. Not just the New Moon Festival. And if you remember, we started this discussion by saying that the term Sabbath in this text is plural, and that's significant. If you recall from last week, one of the examples we used of where that term Sabbatismos, that technical term that the whole interpretation hinges on, one of the examples we looked at from the Old Testament where that term was used was Leviticus chapter 16, verse 31 where God speaks of the Day of Atonement, and he calls the Day of Atonement a Sabbath day for Israel, no matter what day of the week it falls on. don't have to be the seventh day. It could be the first day, third day, fifth day. As long as a day that is set aside by God is happening, Israel is to treat it as a Sabbath day. So why then would the word Sabbath in all these contexts be plural? Because it's not talking just about the seventh day of observance. It's talking about all days that God appointed for Israel. That's why there's multiple, and the term is Sabbaths. It's not just referring to the seventh day. It's referring to the Jewish calendar, all of their days. So with all that in mind, let's come back to Colossians chapter 2. And I think its meaning should become fairly clear. Paul tells us that no one should rejudge us, should judge us in regard to food or drink or festival, new moon, or Sabbaths. Now, I told you to hold on to a phrase a second ago. Let's start with the food or the drink. No one should judge you in regard to food or drink. Now, we read that and we think it's talking about alcohol and meat sacrifice to idols. In other words, let no one judge you whether you drink alcohol or not or whether you are going to eat the meat sacrificed to the idols or something like that. Because we see that, that those things were controversial in Scripture. But I would submit to you, that's not what Paul means by food and drink in this text. He's not referring to those things. If you paid careful attention when I was reading all of those quotes, you would have noticed that right before they mentioned the new moons, festivals, and Sabbaths, they made reference to food and drink offerings almost every single time. The Jews had to offer food offerings and drink offerings as part of their sacrifices to God. And that was especially true on the holy days, the new moons, the festivals, and the Sabbaths. So when Paul mentions food and drink here, he's not talking about alcohol or whether the Jewish dietary laws apply to you. He's talking about food and drink offerings under the Mosaic economy. And he's saying that no one should judge you in regards to whether you are not following the Jewish way of sacrifice. That's his point. Paul's telling them that when it comes to their turning away from the Jewish religion, they're going to be judged by people that they're not offering the food offerings and the drink offerings and that they're not observing the Jewish calendar and the holy days. They're going to get judgment. But he says, stand firm. Let no one judge you in those things. 
And why, was they, why were they not to allow anyone to judge them? Because Christ had come and he was the substance of all of those things. The offering, the perfect offering that the food offering and the drink offering represented had come and been made. All of those Jewish holy days, we don't have time to go through them, were filled with Christological significance. God didn't just give them for no reason. And the full revelation of the Son of God had been made. And so they were not to worry about observing those Jewish holy days. And this is all confirmed in the last words of the verse where he says, these things are a shadow. They were a shadow. But Christ is the substance And just to confirm our interpretation of the food or drink offerings, you wouldn't be able to say that these things were a shadow if he was referring to whether you could drink alcohol or not. Or whether or not, well, maybe it would apply to the Jewish dietary laws, but certainly the drink there can't be alcohol stuff because that wasn't a type or a shadow. But the drink offering was. So the author, Paul's primary concern is that the Colossians not observe things that were meant to serve as a shadow and type of Christ. All right. <coughs> Excuse me. That's what the verse is teaching. They are not to observe the Jewish rites. The verse has nothing to do with the fourth commandment. It's not even in the view of discourse. And that fourth commandment was in place long before the Jewish grain offerings and holy days were in place. He's telling them not to worry about the Jewish rites and sacrifices. That has no bearing on a command that had been in place from creation. And if you think about it for just a second, if you say that this text excludes observance of the Lord's Day and the text is clearly concerned with observing things that are a shadow, you are calling observance of the Lord's Day a shadow, a type or a shadow. My friends, the Lord's Day is not a shadow of the good things to come in Christ. It is a looking back on the fact that Christ and his good things have already come. So that's Colossians 2. It's not abrogating the fourth commandment. It's using an idiom for Jewish holy days to tell us that we have no obligation to observe them, should we so choose. We come then to the last objection that is often raised, and it is based out of Romans chapter 14. Let me read verses 4 through 6 to you. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Here's the key. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Now I'm sure you can see the objection to the Sabbath laying right there on the surface of the text. Paul says one person esteems all days the same, and one person esteems a day better than another, but that no judgment should be passed, and that each person must be convinced in their own mind of what they're doing. So therefore, the Sabbath can't be true. Because if it were, we would be esteeming one day as higher than another, and it would not be up to each individual to determine for themselves whether they were convinced in their own mind. If the Sabbath were truly a part of God's moral commandments, it would not be up to the freedom of the individual. 
So what do we do with this? Well, there are a couple of things I think that show definitively that this text is not referring to the fourth commandment. First, and most simply, is the analogy of faith. You know what the analogy of faith is. If your interpretation of a passage puts you at odds with clear, consistent teaching from Genesis to Revelation, then your interpretation is obviously in error, and you need to keep trying. And we've already seen from studying Hebrews that in the New Covenant, there is a sabbatismos, a 24-hour Sabbath observance that still remains. He plainly states that using technical language from the Old Testament that applies to setting aside a day, not just resting in Christ in general. And given that Paul either wrote the book of Hebrews or at the very least, it's clear his theology is the foundation and inspiration of the book. If you interpret Romans 14 to be saying that all days of the week are equal alike and to be esteemed in one accord, you are contradicting the writer to the book of Hebrews and you're probably putting Paul at odds with himself. Second, if you're going to take that interpretation, you are saying that the fourth commandment is no longer in force and that God's moral law can be changed. And now you're going to have to come up with a whole new perspective on the nature of God's law if you think it can change. Nor will it help you to say, well, okay, we still believe that God's moral law doesn't change. We believe the fourth commandment's binding. We just believe that we observe it 24-7 now. We just rest in Christ all the time. And so we're always fulfilling the fourth commandment. Because that still involves a change in the moral aspects of the fourth commandment. How so? Because that view says now that all of life is worship. I just worship all the time. I'm always resting in Christ. I'm always worshiping. Except when the fourth commandment was given, God clearly differentiated set times of worship and you're cleaning out and taking out the garbage. They're not the same thing. Now, you may well be doing that to the honor and glory of God, taking out the garbage, but that's not the same thing as public set-aside worship. That is clearly differentiated in the scriptures all the way through. And so if you take this view that, well, all of life is worship, and so I'm always fulfilling the fourth commandment, now worship itself, what its definition is, has changed. And what are we doing here? You can go do this at home. You can do it all the time. So I don't think that that gets you out of it by by making that sleight of hand. And a final thing that I think is a definitive consideration to show that this text is not talking about the Lord's Day comes from the way that the rest of the New Testament and the apostles themselves treat the first day of the week. If this passage is truly teaching that when it comes to the seven days of the calendar week that there is no distinction amongst any of them, then why did the apostles of the New Testament church set aside Sunday to gather and worship if there was nothing binding about Sunday? Why didn't each church just get to pick whatever day was most convenient for them to gather together? I've been in churches where they've said, well, we just do it out of Christian tradition, but if it were more convenient to do it on another day, well, we'd gather then. Why wouldn't they be able to? If it was truly the case that there was nothing binding by the apostles about Sunday, then each church would have been pretty much free to pick whatever day that they wanted to. And is it really a coincidence that they all picked the exact same day? Every single one of them? Why wouldn't they have picked Saturday, even just a few of them? I mean, they were already used to worshiping on that day. Their entire weekly schedules were already oriented about being ready to worship on Saturday. If it was truly no different than Sunday, what's the problem with just keeping it? At least a few of them surely would have done that. Now, you might say, well, okay... They picked to worship on Sunday because they thought it would seem appropriate uh, to commemorate Christ's resurrection on that day. Okay? 
Well, if the resurrection of Christ is not his establishment of the new creation and his resting from that, then why would they feel the need to commemorate only that specific event in his life? There's plenty of other huge events in the life of Christ that you could commemorate. What day of the week was Christ crucified on? Friday. And what was the crucifixion? Where our sins were nailed to the Son of God and atonement was made. That's weighty stuff. Is that not worthy of commemoration? And not a single church picked Friday as the day to commemorate. How about the ascension of Christ? That's a big, huge doctrine, especially if you understand and you connect it to a lot of stuff in the Old Testament. That's when he started uh, to enter his mediatory work for the church. That is huge. Not a single church picked the day of the week that Christ ascended to commemorate. You say, well, we don't know what it was. Yes, you do. It was 40 days after Sunday. He ascended on a Thursday. Not a single person picked Thursday to commemorate. I mean, if every church had perfect freedom and all days of the week were identical, how did all of them decide to pick the exact same day? And in addition, why would John call Sunday the Lord's Day? Why give it a special designation if all days are exactly alike? What is John doing calling Sunday the Lord's Day and imputing a significance to it that he does not impute to other days of the week. I guess he didn't believe what Paul said in this text. Or you're just interpreting it wrong. So, as we've seen, if you interpret the days spoken of here by Paul as actual days of the week, then you are overthrowing the theology and practice of the rest of the New Testament and the Apostle Paul himself. So then what is this passage talking about? I would say... That analyzing it is very similar to the type of thing we see when Paul says that all things are lawful for him. All things are lawful. Now just on the surface of that text, all things are lawful, think of what you could justify if you failed to bring together all of Paul's theology to bear upon the interpretation of that text. All things are lawful. Therefore, I can quote that text as I finish my line of cocaine, as the pornography file finishes downloading, as I beat my wife and children for disobeying me, and as I plunge my knife into my neighbor. For all things are lawful. Paul says it explicitly. All means all, right? Now, when someone raises a text like that, they probably wouldn't be doing it to justify, for most people, such heinous sins. But when people do raise that, raise that text to justify themselves, what is our response? We typically say... Wait a minute, you've got to understand the context that Paul is addressing when he says all things are lawful. He's not saying all things absolutely, as in everything under the sun is lawful. He says all things in a certain category are lawful. By the way, if an Arminian says he all means all, and that's all all means. All has so many different meanings in the New Testament, it's not even funny. Anyways... The Apostle Paul is saying in that text, all things of moral indifference are lawful to him. Things that do not directly violate God's law, but that might be good or bad, depending on the situation. What does he say? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Morally indifferent things are what are lawful to the Apostle. It's all things within a certain category. In the same way, I would submit to you that in our passage, Paul is not dealing with all days absolutely considered, but with the same category of days that he felt the need to write to the church at Colossae about. And what were those? The ceremonial days of the Jewish calendar. He is writing to the Romans, keep this in mind, the letter to the Romans is one of the first letters of the New Testament that was written. 
He's writing to them early in the apostolic period. And one of the big issues being worked out at the time he wrote this letter is what does Christ's coming mean for our observance of the old ways of religion? It's no doubt that some believers felt that they could still observe the Passover or Pentecost or a similar Jewish holy day with a clean conscience without denying Christ. While other theologically advanced believers might have felt that to do so, to observe those Jewish holy days, was to go back to the old ways and that they could not do so in good conscience. And this led to friction. It led to tension. And Paul writes and says, listen, don't judge weaker brothers. Just like with the food sacrifice to idols. If a weaker brother feels he can do this with a clear conscience, don't judge him with respect to the holy days. The issue of observing Jewish rites and ceremonies took time to develop. Just like circumcision, like we said earlier, it didn't go away right after the resurrection. It took years before the apostles gathered and declared it to be of no spiritual value. But until that time, until the Jerusalem Council, men could lawfully circumcise their sons without denying Christ so long as they did so without making it a prerequisite for grace. As long as they didn't say, you have to do this in order to be right with God, they could still lawfully circumcise their sons. It wasn't unlawful for them as all of these things were being worked out. And so if a person wants to, in the year 40 A.D., observe Passover and not bind it upon other people, he was at liberty to do so. He esteems that day of value. Someone else says, no, Christ is my Passover. I can't do it in good conscience. And Paul says, enough. Let one person observe it as long as no legalism begins to develop within this. And eventually, all Orthodox Christians obviously would come to understand how Christ had done away with all of those things, but that took time. It was lawful for believers at this time, so long as they didn't make it legalism. Well, there you have it. Six common objections to the Sabbath dealt with in just under an hour. And next week, Lord willing, we will look at the Sabbath from the perspective of the Puritans and see what wisdom we can glean from them about their view of the day and their observance of the day. Uh, It'll probably be a little bit shorter, and this is where we'll get into some practical application. I think that'll be the last sermon we do in the Sabbath series. Uh, Paul might want to do one more to tie off a loose end. He'll have to listen to these, like I said, and decide that for himself. So let's pray.